Lord, we thank you uh, that you are the God who um, is a God of community, that you are a God that, uh, that cares so much for the one that you would not uh, leave one behind, Lord, that you are a God that, uh, that cares so much for every individual that you would make a way, God. And, and we are so thankful that uh, we can be part of that way, Lord, that you have called us to be part of that way. And Lord, I pray that we would do that well, God, that as um, there are those who may be disconnected or feeling left out, there are those who, um, who need assistance, those who just need someone to reach out. Lord, we pray that we would be your hands and feet. Lord, we pray that you would do what we can't, God. You would minister by your spirit and bring strength, healing and wholeness. You would bring hope and vision. Lord, we pray that you would bring your comforting presence and your peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, we ask for all of this in your name. Amen. Well, if you have been with us over the last month or two, we've been uh, sharing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you missed the last couple of Sundays, um, this is why you should probably um, not miss out on church too much if you can help it, because uh, as much as we recorded the sermons, they actually accidentally got recorded over. Um, <laughs> And so we're missing a couple of, um, of our sessions and I'll try and share the notes uh, from some of those. One of those weeks was far more practical and so the notes are probably more helpful. Um, and last week I'll try and condense what, um, what we shared into something that we can um, give you so there's not a gap. We didn't just skip that bit because it was too difficult. Um, but where we're up to today... Um, we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we're up to verse 33. So to give you a quick summary of where we've been and where we're at before we jump into this, um, started with the Beatitudes, God's recognition that the kingdom is made present amongst those that he mentions the kingdom is made present amongst those uh, who are the poor, the, those who are the ones who hunger and thirst after righteousness, amongst the persecuted and um, amongst those who might be on the outsides of society. God is found amongst those and so should we as those who follow him. We've been talking about how Jesus treats the scriptures that he has, which in his case would have been the Old Testament, but how he speaks to the law, this instruction, and what he advises or what he shows us about how to handle this, um, this text that we're given, the instructions and the law that it contains. And so we've spoken about how, uh, how Jesus teaches that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, and that there was, you know, a, a way that God was revealed in Scripture in the Old Testament through the law, but that is um, like Moses sees God, kind of a shadow from behind, something that looks like God, but not quite a full revelation. Um, and the prophets, we hear the voice of God, like Elijah, he hears God in the still small voice. 
but he doesn't see the fullness of who God is. He doesn't see that full revelation of God. And, the, um, and so what we have in um, the Old Testament, in the, prophet, in the writings of the prophets, we have the voice of God that Jesus speaks to, and he says, my sheep hear my voice. As we open up those scriptures, we recognize his voice in them. But then he explains that the face of God is revealed to us, that we can see the fullness of God. Paul explains it um, later by putting it like this, the fullness of God is revealed in Jesus. So we approach these instructions by getting to know him, by encountering him. I have been reading a few passages in, um, in Isaiah this week and it strikes me every time it says or that the prophets speak about um, this time coming where God would make himself known and it says, let the face of God shine upon you. Who is the face of God? Jesus revealed to us is the face of God. And so we have seen in the last few chapters how this leads us to deal with particularly those passages that reflect the, the Ten Commandments, those very core parts of, um, of the law, and how it leads us to a new way of dealing with each other, a new way of seeing one another and ourselves in light of the fact that we are children of God. And in verse 33, we pick up another one of these instructions where it deals with something that is familiar to those that know the Ten Commandments, those that know the law and the instruction, that it's something that... God has explicitly said that we should not bear false witness. There are further instructions throughout Deuteronomy that talk about the requirement of God's people not to take oaths. And here Jesus speaks to that. He says, again, I've heard it was said to the people, do not break your oath, do not, uh, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear by an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply, yes or no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In some translations, it's let your yes be yes and your no be no. Here Jesus, like a lot of the other passages in the lead up to this, is dealing with not only the law as it was given in the Torah, but the law as it was given by the religious leaders of the day. 
what they were accustomed to doing was opening up the scripture, deciding what it was that God had said that shouldn't be done, and creating a system of increasingly more complex laws to ensure that the people would never transgress against the law as it was interpreted from Scripture. And so these laws of man, as Jesus refers to them, came from a place of a desire to serve God the right way, came from a right heart, a right motivation, I can only guess. But to make sure we didn't go to a place of being near crossing a line, you know. And so all of these things that were not what God had said became the accepted law, the religious law. And so a lot of that, when you say, you've heard it said to the people, this is the kind of law Jesus is speaking to. Because these instructions were not what was actually written in the law that Jesus says he's not come to abolish. But these are specifically speaking to all of the extra things that had been added to the law. So where God said, do not bear false witness, do not swear falsely, they'd created a culture, a habit of swearing by everything because it could be trusted. So if you were to not swear falsely, if you swore, like, I, oh, I swear that's true, you know, like, kind of like that. Um, not swears in, like, curse words. Um, if you were to swear on something, it could be trusted. But if you've ever known someone who does that routinely, or if you ask yourself what kind of conversation those kind of phrases come up in. There's a reason why there's kind of a need. Like, I, I feel like if you're ever watching a movie and you've got the cartoon caricature of someone who's guilty and they say, I swear, I swear, I swear, like, you know, it, it kind of, it almost comes to the point where just the need to express that kind of thing says that, well, the rest of the time, I'm probably not that honest. See, what Jesus speaks to here is the fact that you can follow the law to the letter and you can even create a system around it to make sure you never transgress against the law and you can still not be transformed by it. You can still not be a person of integrity. You can still be a person who is dishonest by character and so he pushes back and says let your yes be yes this isn't a you know a another law to add to the laws this isn't to say well you can't go to court and do the things you know when they require you to swear an oath this isn't another law to say that you can't you know, sign a document. But what this speaks to is a character issue. What this speaks to is a habit 
of not being honest, so much so that when you are, you have to state that you are. Of the kind of character that becomes known by those around you that you may not actually mean what you say or say what you mean. And there are a whole lot of reasons we get ourselves into that kind of place. Sometimes it's because we don't really know who we are. We try to form a way that others would see us by only allowing them to see the parts of us that we would like them to see, only allowing them to see parts of us which we would like to think that we are. Maybe, like me, you get yourself into a habit of being overcommitted to things to the point where you become unreliable. And so it gets to the point where people don't trust necessarily that you will be committed at all. Maybe there's things that you're or you have been part of that you're not particularly proud of and so you cover. There's all sorts of reasons why we don't live a life that has the kind of integrity that means that people can trust that our yes is yes and our no is no. And this passage is not, it's not an attempt to tell people that again, they're not living up to the law. But this is a picture of the way that the kingdom needs to be seen by those. This is the kind of witness we're supposed to live. This is the way that this kingdom that Jesus is teaching about is made known to those. This entire passage says that every person is a child of God, that every action has implications that every choice impacts people. But this kingdom is a kingdom where we would have the kind of integrity that we could trust each other. And yes, until all things are made right, that's going to be an imperfect process. But the witness we live, the way that we walk, we're invited into this kind of kingdom, one where you can let your yes be yes and your no be no. One where you would be free enough to say, I, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm sorry, I failed. Well, yes, that is something that is part of my story. See, we all have a responsibility, actually, to make this kind of space that allows for our yes to be yes and our no to be no. Because sometimes the reason that you haven't been able to say the things that you needed to say was because the space wasn't safe. Sometimes the reason that you haven't been able to be honest about where you're at is because sometimes we can't trust 
that we'll be accepted or included and it's just a basic human desire to be part of something, to belong, to be included, to, you know, we're created for community by a God who is a God of community. And so that desire leads us to make choices which seem like the only way forward. So this statement isn't just one to individuals to become legalistic in the words that we use. Sometimes I've had to answer the question where people say, is it right that sometimes we have to lie in a situation? Do you think there's ever situations where you have to say something that is untrue? I know there's been situations that sometimes you can't say what is for someone's safety, for the sake of a greater truth. What about situations where people have to escape some kind of violence? What about situations where people are being persecuted or... I mean, there are certainly situations in history you can point to where entire groups of people have had to lie to protect others. What about our friends who are missionaries in countries where it's illegal? I'm pretty sure their visa documents don't say I'm here to preach the gospel. So it's not as simple as only ever. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in that kind of legalistic thinking when we consider this kind of a statement. But this isn't about legalism or measuring words by some kind of law, but it's about being a person of integrity. It's about bearing witness to the kingdom because of the kind of kingdom that is being revealed in us. Because of the Jesus that we see. Being witness always to what is the greater truth. So to those of you who have or hold any guilt according to some kind of situation where maybe you had to to say something that would have been less than, you know, the black and white truth to protect the safety of someone or the greater truth is that the person who is in an unsafe situation or whatever that, you know, situation was, the greater truth is that they're loved by God just as much as everyone else and deserve safety and freedom just like anyone else. The greater truth is that God loves every person and so sometimes when, you know, when we talk about, you know, the way that the gospel is being shared in 
countries where the good news isn't necessarily received as good news because of power and all sorts of problems. The greater truth is that God loves every individual that that will impact. The greater truth is that those people deserve freedom and hope and all the things that we have. The greater truth is that the kingdom that we witness to is one where we shouldn't need to swear, but where our words can be trusted by those around us because we live a life of integrity. Now, as I sing the songs this morning, I am a child of God. And as we encourage everyone to sing that song, I am a child of God, the question we have to ask as a church is, is that something that we live? that every person who we invite to sing those words would be treated as if that was true. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. So is it true? For the young people that I sit alongside throughout the week and hold conversations with that have been excluded from their families or from all kinds of things because of sometimes the simplest misunderstanding that they're less than worth being treated like they're a child of God. Can they come and sing those words? And will our actions mean that those words have integrity. I've had a few really cool conversations this week with our students and the best one is having the chance to talk to them about the Bible and about God and, and every time, without fail, I, I, I was saying um, to Elry this week, uh, because as we walked in after um, I'd been out and um, Elry happened to be in the foyer, I walked in and one of the new um, students, so she's been here about six or eight weeks, she's like, I've got a question for you. I was like, oh, this is ominous. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been doing a devotion with them every Friday morning and we talk about everything they saw, the staff saw, the work we did um, around um, apology and holding hard conversations a couple of weeks back. And so they asked me to share that with them. So, And I always open with, um, you know, the reason I teach these things is, um, you know, because I believe that every person is created with value and if we learn to value and treat each other well, then the world will be a better place. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very subtle way of preaching the gospel to them in, um, in you know, school safe terms and um and so yeah we've had those conversations and then this young one says i've got a question for you so i sat down and she says if god is so good you know where this is going right 
God is so good, then why does he let this stuff happen? Every one of the conversations I have with the young people here, everyone, that's the question they have. You know, sometimes they have some other questions first. Sometimes they start with the really practical stuff, usually involving, you know, does God want anything to do with me? But then it always comes down to that. One of the girls jumps in to answer, you know, some stuff that she's been told and, you know, like God, yeah. Oh, God's got it figured out and sometimes, you know, like we don't understand. And I had to say, I don't, I don't know that that's the whole truth. Um, and so it's kind of a complex conversation about, you know, God's will and free will and all of those kind of things. But basically I'll always point back to the fact that I, I, don't, um, I don't look around us and see a world where God has exact and ultimate control over everything that's happening. It's not the truth I see, not according to the God I know believe that God ultimately has you know God is sovereign over all and that his plan is for all to be made right but where we stand right now but what I do know is that God himself entered into the story to show us a better way and the way that he showed us that was that he would rather suffer and die than participate in the system that was causing suffering. I don't really know where to go when they get to that point, they go, ah. Oh. And like usually carry on to some other obscure conversation. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just leave you with that. But one of the girls said to me a little later, um, I've been reading the Bible. And one of the boys was like holding on to one of the Bibles we've got sitting out here. Um, by the way, there's always one you can pick up if you want um, to refer to scriptures. And so he's, he's said a couple of times he's interested in, you know, maybe coming to church. Or, and, um, and he's been uh, reading the Bible. And he started from front to back. And you know that's always going to be... <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> and I said... So where are you up to? And he's like, oh, one where they have lots of kids, I think. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. That could be a long story. All right. So, so what's the difference between the old testimony and the new testimony? That's how he said it. <laughs> and so then they have this whole conversation where they're both referring to it as the old testimony <laughs> and the new testimony, and it was great. Um, and I'm like, close enough. I'm not even going to correct you. Cool. Um, and so, so they, um, one of the girls says, you know, I think it's like this. Like the old testimony is like, you know, what we first knew about God. And then the New Testament, and she's like, at this point has no idea. I explained after that, you know, it's from the point where Jesus enters the picture and all of that. But she says, I think the New Testimony is like, you know, we have like more. We we have more information about God, so it's like this, like you know, more of a more of a big picture, more of a whole picture of like about God. And I was like, well, that's probably some pretty good theology. 
And so I, I got to explain to them about how Jesus changes the story. Um, and it got me thinking about this idea of testimony and witness and the testimony that we have about who God is and what it looks like to be a witness. What does it look like to bear witness to a God that doesn't just sit idly because or, or while suffering is going on in the world, but a God who enters into the picture. What does it look like to bear witness to a God who says that every person matters, every person is valued so much that he would walk into their story? What does it look like to bear witness to a God who believes that every story matters as much as the next, as much as mine? What does it look like to be a church that bears witness to a God who looks like Jesus in a way that has integrity, that lets our yes be yes, that when we say we welcome all, that that holds true when people come looking for welcome? What does it look like to be a church that says we care about our community? What does it look like to bear witness to that kind of God? Because you think about what a witness does in a legal matter. They testify to something that's happened that someone else hasn't yet seen or doesn't yet know or maybe doesn't have the ability to see for themselves. When we're invited to be a witness to the good news that is the kingdom of God, we're invited to share something of the insight into who God is with people who have yet to see it. I heard some teaching this week um, at an event on Tuesday where it was an interfaith um, gathering, so people of all different faiths, um, Baha'i and Buddhist, and Muslim, Christian. Um, and there was uh, one of, uh, or a friend of mine who shared on nonviolent direct action and to hear the way that he opened up passages of the Bible and talked about Jesus in a way that was 100% relevant to everyone in that room, whether they were of, uh, you know, whatever faith they were from, he was talking about something that was truth. You know, he was talking about how, um, how the world responds when we can live those principles of nonviolent response uh, you know, so he was talking about the double win and how, you know, that is to both bear witness to what's wrong but also invite a person who may recognise their guilt in that process, invites them in to a better picture. What would it look like to be a church that bears witness to the ways of God in a way that people would see what's wrong with the world but not 
be made to feel like there's something wrong with them. That they would change, be transformed according to who God is without being condemned. See, Jesus said, I came to bring life. I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. What does that kind of witness look like? I see it on a daily basis. I see it in the work that's done by many of you. I see it by the work that's done by our staff here. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to have um, the teacher and one or two of the staff members come and share. And I'm hoping one of our students will come and do the table talk for us. There's a couple that go to church and um, I'd love to have them come and, you know, come and share what it's like for them at school. Um, you know, I see it and we see it in little witnesses all over the place. And what I want this place to be is a place where anyone can come and encounter something of that witness and be invited into that, where there's always room for one more. You know, anyone who's had a conversation with me over the last couple of weeks knows that sometimes we have tougher weeks here than others. Sometimes, you know, every roster has gaps and we come along and, you know, when it's a group the size that we are, when lots of people are sick or away or whatever, you know, it, it's like, you know, is this what you want us to be doing? And every time I come to that point to consider that, I'm, I feel like the question that I hear in the back of my mind is how else would there be room for one more? How else do we make room for one more? How can we make room for one more? How can we allow people to be invited into that picture? And ask the band to come and join me. Hebrews chapter 11. It's a pretty famous verse. It says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It really freaks me out what people do to that verse, trying to make it fit a God who maybe has some kind of chess piece control over everything that's going on. Until someone said to me recently, and it might have been Nathan or Nathan quoting someone, but the doubt and faith are not opposites. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. So if the opposite of faith is not doubt, uh, I think, I, I mean, I sat with that for a bit and it's true. If you're certain of something, you don't need any faith. So what is faith then if it's not a belief system or structure that we can be certain of? And this verse, I think, says it all, and maybe if we put it in the, that concept of witness, faith is a substance. 
When you have an idea and that idea has substance, what does that mean? You have a goal or a project that you want to do. Maybe in your workplace you have values or, or something that's outlined that's, you know, conceptual. What does it look like for that thing to have sub- substance? It means it has action, has legs. It, it does stuff. It's touchable, tangible. It's present in people's lives. Faith is the substance. See, when we can walk into what God is inviting us into, even when we're not entirely sure, when we start to live that reality, even when we can't get it perfect, even when we're not sure how it all works out, even when we're not sure if we're 100% getting it right, when we live that kind of faith, there is substance. It has an impact on people's lives around us. It bears witness to the kind of God that is active in the world. It's the evidence of things unseen. Come back to our court case. Legal terms. But it is the evidence that the world sees that God is active, that God is a God who cares for them. See, when you stand up for someone who has been left out, you are evidence of things unseen. The things unseen is the kingdom. The things unseen, the same kind of unseen as the kingdom that Jesus talks about when he talks about the unseen kingdom. So when you participate in the things that God has called you to do, whatever that work is that you're part of, whatever that relationship is that, you know, you choose to walk out with integrity, when you choose to be a person who bears witness to the truth that everyone matters, that all are welcome, all are invited in, we become substance, evidence of things unseen. I hear it over and over again when we have community events or people who come in here for all sorts of things during the week and when they see the students who are sitting alongside teachers who will sit with them one-on-one or hear the stories of our students who came from a place of being addicted or completely disconnected or, you know, anxiety that meant they never left the house, all kinds of things. And when these young people are going into workplaces and getting uh, an education, people go, what? What is this, like, that would make space in the world for even these, the least of these? It's evidence of a God who says that every one of them matters just as much as our teenagers or the young person who's born into a position of privilege. Every one of them matters. God said it, we bear witness to it. This is why it's so important that we walk out this life of integrity. We begin here. 
at the table, bearing witness to the kind of God that says that everyone is welcome, that everyone's invited in, that we're all equal in the sight of God. Just as we sit around a table and share a meal, we're all equal. When we're invited into this space, we remember that this is the kind of God we bear witness to. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to take a moment as we prepare to come to the table. Recognising that we don't always get it right. But aside from coming to the table each week, another important part of this thing we do every time we gather is what we might sometimes call confession, repentance. You know, we sometimes say a sinner's prayer together, depending on what kind of church background you have. I don't think this is just for first-time decisions, but something that we need to recognise weekly, that where we fall short, God meets us in the middle and walks with us the rest of the way. But first we have to do the walk humbly part and recognise that there are things that are not as they should be in this world and there are ways in which we can be part of making a difference And so for anywhere that we haven't done that yet or anywhere we've been part of the stuff that's gone wrong, we take the time to recognise that, to ask God for forgiveness. Merciful God. We recognise that we don't always get it right. That we have sinned and fallen short that we've not loved you with our whole heart, not loved our neighbour, the stranger, our enemy, as you first loved us. So we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We repent today. Help us to walk your way. Lead us by your Holy Spirit. That we would be a witness to your kingdom, that we would let our yes be yes and our no be no, and that the world would see who you are, even in glimpses as we grow into who you're calling us to be. The church, this is the table, not of the church but of the Lord, is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more, so come. You who have much faith and you who have a little. You who have tried to follow Jesus. You who have failed in following Jesus. And you who have just decided to follow Jesus today. Let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now if necessary. Go and be a forgiver. Then run back. Because it is the Lord who invites us. It is God's will that those who desire Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit would encounter him here. So come.